You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Counterfeit certificates are on sale in criminal markets. Cybercrime is said to cost $600 billion globally every year. Russia objects to being called a bad actor in cyberspace. North Korea's Reaper threat actor steps out from the shadow of its big brother, the Lazarus Group. Catfish from Lebanon spread spyware through Facebook. Israel says it gave Australia a cyber assist against ISIS terror last summer. Ransomware notes, Harper's was hacked and so was Allentown, Pennsylvania. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, February 22, 2018. Researchers at threat intelligence firm Recorded Future investigated a spike in the use of certificates to enable malware infections. Their researchers found that contrary to general opinion, the certificates so used weren't, in general, stolen. Instead, they're counterfeited and registered using stolen corporate identities. As their report puts it, quote, Contrary to a common belief that the security certificates circulating in the criminal underground are stolen from legitimate owners prior to being used in nefarious campaigns, we confirmed with a high degree of certainty that the certificates are created for a specific buyer per request only and are registered using stolen corporate identities, making traditional network security appliances less effective. Code signing certificates are used to verify that code has been written by a particular author, the certificate holder, and that the code hasn't been altered or tampered with. The certificate includes a cryptographic hash that validates the signed code's authenticity and integrity. Certificates served up by malware do more than the obvious damage of helping the malware establish itself in victim systems. They tend to make deep packet inspection on infected systems less effective. The criminals don't appear to be making a killing in this particular black market, so certificate sales appear likely to remain a boutique niche for criminals. Nation-states are a different matter. They'll probably see considerable advantage to using fake code signing and SSL certificates in their highly targeted operations. Russian diplomats denounce British attribution of NotPetya to Russian security services. They also denounce American contentions that Russia is a safe haven for cybercriminals, in large part because of a cozy relationship between those security services and organized cyber gangs. The common theme comes down to a complaint that there's no evidence. No Western intelligence service, Russia says, has offered any proof that Russia is a bad actor in cyberspace. To strengthen his accusation of American bad faith, Pyotr Svirin, first secretary of the Russian embassy in Washington, asks why, if the Americans are so concerned about cybercrime, they have turned down all of Moscow's efforts to get some cooperation in crime-fighting. First Secretary Svirin's complaint came at a D.C. event yesterday, covered by CyberScoop, in which security firm McAfee and the Center for Strategic and International Studies think tank 
presented the results of their joint study of the economic impact of cybercrime. They see that impact rising. They say it's now up to $600 billion worldwide annually, up $100 billion since a similar study in 2014. Discouragingly, they also conclude that whether countries spend a lot or a little on security against cybercrime, they wind up with similar outcomes. And yes, the study does call out Russia. In fact, it calls out several centers of cybercrime, Brazil, India, and Vietnam, where the issues aren't so much state policy as they are the lawlessness of an entrenched and technically capable criminal subculture. North Korea is a different matter. There, the government itself arranges the crime and has the state security and intelligence apparatus committed directly. And of course, there's the interesting case of Russia. The contention that so angered Mr. Sviren is that the Russian security services, notably the FSB and the GRU, connive with cyber mobs and permit them to hit the right targets. Right, of course, from the point of view of the Russian government. The organization is like a reverse protection racket. Nice little ransomware program you got there. Shame if something happened to it. Of course, if you'd like to take out a Ukrainian power utility, well, all might be overlooked. With so many security products out there, it can be a challenge to comparison shop and evaluate what might be the best fit for your organization. Virus Bulletin is an organization that's been in the security software testing business for over two decades, giving them a unique view of the industry. I checked in with Martijn Groten, the editor of Virus Bulletin, for his perspective. I, th- I think the major change we've seen, and it's, it's a very subtle one, but I think over the past decade or two decades, antivirus has changed from software that hardens your PC or, or your device to software that protects you against things you, you shouldn't do. Um, like download things of the internet that are dangerous or open certain email attachments and then enable macros. Current operating systems are a lot more secure than they were a few years ago. And if you are someone like quite a few security professionals, if you're someone who knows what they should and shouldn't do and, and really trust yourself not to accidentally click on things, you're probably okay without antivirus. It's just that 99% of the people are not like that, and nor should we expect them to. So I think that's a major change. I think in the early days, there were these mass viruses that spread, and everyone really needed antivirus to protect against them. And these days, it's it's more subtle, uh, but it's still very important, I would say. And as you look across the landscape of the various products that are offered, do you feel like we've hit a point where you know, most of them offer a good value, that there's you know there may be differences between them, but you're probably, if you, if you get one of the big-name ones, you're probably going to be in good shape? I, I would say so, yes. And, and of course, it depends how you use it, how you set it up, what kind of threats you're facing. I mean, they're, they typically are better at protecting you against mass malware than about against very targeted attacks. And it's not to say that they're powerless against very targeted attacks. But I would say I wouldn't just focus on the big names. I mean, there are lots of smaller names that are doing an equally good job, sometimes for half or half the price of, of a big name or, or less. The product landscape is quite varied, but overall products are doing a pretty decent job and much better than they often uh, get credit for. And as uh, operating systems have gotten more sophisticated and the attacks have gotten more sophisticated, uh, how have you had to adapt your testing procedures? An antivirus product has many different layers. And to test it, you need to be more clear about which layers you test. In, in, in the past, it was all about, is a product able to detect this virus or not? And these days, there are so many different layers, and you need to focus on... Uh, specific layers or on several layers at, at once and depending on what you do and depending on what the purpose of your test is you get different results and i think it's uh, you have to be more and uh, more careful about 
the kind of claims you make. And I'm, I'm always very hesitant about us or, or other testers making very big claims about all products detect this or all products miss this. And things are a lot more subtle in practice. I see. What advice do you have for people who are trying to shop around to decide which product is best for them? I, th- I think the general advice at first is, is always try to see what kind of threats are you concerned about? Which kind of threats does your organization face? What kind of threats are you prepared to defend against? Uh, maybe you're a small business and maybe you are worried about uh, an advanced attacker from overseas who who may be um, very skilled and have a lot of money to spend on attacking you. Uh, but maybe you decide that that's a risk you're, it's worth taking. And hopefully, or even more likely, you'll decide that actually this is not something you should worry about. I've seen a trend among security professionals working in, and not in the security industry, but working in, in the real world, so to say, to get overly worried about all the fear-mongering going on in security, the, the things that we say, almost trying to overprotect themselves, buying solutions that look very nice, but maybe offer only a tiny bit of extra protection that is just not worth for the kind of organization that you have. At the same time, if you are an organization in, in special fields or you're a very big organization, then you need to be aware that what works for a small company, what works for an average home user is not good enough for you. That's Martijn Groten from Virus Bulletin. More spyware has been found being distributed by Facebook Catfish, when some profiles of fictional people named Rita, Alona, yes, Alona, who would no doubt have suggested she no longer wants to be Alona, and Christina were seeking contacts whom they would infect with spyware. The campaign, which seems to have originated in Lebanon, was discovered and described by Prague-based security firm Avast. If you want to connect with Rita, Alona, or Christina, you're too late. Their profiles are all gone from Facebook, probably enjoying a digital afterlife somewhere in the company of Robin Sage. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu this week credits his country's Unit 8200 with detecting an ISIS plot last year to destroy an airliner and with tipping off Australian security authorities in time to stop the bombers. Two men were arrested. The plane wasn't bombed. A paper in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology describes increased hacker interest in implantable medical devices. The probability of attacks against devices like pacemakers may be rising. Colorado's Department of Transportation is struggling with a large SamSam ransomware infestation, according to the anti-phishing specialists at Before, SamSam is financially motivated, but other ransomware strains aren't. Annabelle ransomware, for one, seems motivated by the lulls and the desire to show off. Malware Hunter team is tracking it. The good news, reported by Bleeping Computer, is that Annabelle is a variant of stupid ransomware, that's a proper name by the way, not a description, and can be removed with an updated stupid decryptor. Bravo to Mr. Michael Gillespie, proprietor of the stupid decryptor. Two other incidents are worth mentioning. Harper's, the venerable American Journal of Opinion, has warned subscribers that their passwords may have been stolen. And in a municipal hack, the Rust Belt gets a cyberwire brushing. The city of Allentown, Pennsylvania, is struggling with a major emotet infestation. The self-propagating, credential-stealing malware has disabled the city's financial department. No more external banking transactions. Knocked out all the city's 185 public safety surveillance cameras. And is keeping the Allentown Police Department from accessing Pennsylvania State Police databases. According to the Allentown Morning Call, the virus hit last week. 
The city thinks the initial infection vector was a phishing email. Remediation is expected to cost between $800,000 and $900,000. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show Professor Awais Rashid. He's a professor of cybersecurity at the University of Bristol. Uh, Awais, welcome back. Um, we wanted to touch on educational issues today, uh, specifically what cybersecurity professionals should be learning in your estimation. What can you share with us about that? Well, thank you for having me back. Um, I think the key, key thing that we need to bear in mind is that uh, cybersecurity is uh, becoming an increasingly uh, complex issue. And one of the big problems is the focus that we tend to have is very much still from the mindset that there is a single device that is that is being attacked and, and being used. Of course, we uh, teach people about security of networks and, and all those all those kind of issues. But really, we need to be thinking beyond that. We are moving towards very uh, highly connected infrastructure. And we are not talking about a device, small number of devices, a network that is often under the control of a single organization, potentially. We are really talking about uh, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of devices interacting with each other, interacting with users, uh, new devices coming into that environment. And that is a very complex landscape. And at the moment, we are not focusing enough in terms of what the future problems are. We, we, we still very much in our education tend to be very reactive 
which is important. We want to teach about uh, what are the problems of today uh, or of the near future and solve them. But ultimately, as we connect our infrastructure more and more, these issues are going to become very, very pertinent. And we need to also think about what we should be teaching professionals in terms of how to protect infrastructure of the future. So in terms of someone who is a student who's looking to uh, set out their uh, their roadmap of the classes they want to take and the things they want to study, what suggestions do you have? Well, I, I have, of course, a little bit of a biased view at the moment in the sense that I, <laughs> I, I lead a project called the Cybersecurity Body of Knowledge Project. But if anyone who is interested can actually go and uh, look at www.cyborg.org and there is a a detailed document which uh, which has been built through a consultation with uh, stakeholders in academia, industry, uh, as to what are the key knowledge areas that people need to know about. And there are a total of 19 knowledge areas divided into five categories. So there we highlight things like infrastructure security, of course, uh, software and platform security, system security, but very importantly also understanding attacks and defenses and human organizational and regulatory aspects. And the uh, fact of the matter is that none of these things exist in isolation. All of these uh, interplay in complex ways in the complex infrastructures that we are increasingly developing and will continue to develop in the future. Not everyone will be an expert in everything, but it's important that when people become experts in a particular aspect of security, they are still cognizant of the fact that all these other factors influence what happens so that they can look at the big picture rather than just only a very narrow part of it. Professor Awais Rashid, thanks for joining us. The Cybersecurity Body of Knowledge is at cybok.org. That's C-Y-B-O-K dot org. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.